This is a Federal News Network podcast. The prevention of veteran suicides has been an ongoing and high priority for the Veterans Affairs Department. Efforts go far beyond hotlines and other operational measures and extend into research. Both research and operational support have a locus at VA's Rocky Mountain Mental Illness Research Education and Clinical Center in Aurora, Colorado. For an update, we turn to the center's director, Dr. Lisa Brenner. Dr. Brenner, good to have you on. Oh, thank you so much for having me today. So let's talk about, first of all, the question on everyone's mind is what effect the pandemic and all of the ancillary isolation and protocols have had on suicide, do we know? Yeah, I mean, I think that's something we're all very interested in and we're watching very closely. One thing we've been able to do is track folks in real time. And so far, it suggests that we're doing okay and that people have really had a coming together potentially during COVID. But I think what's going to happen next and the downstream effect of COVID and on mental health overall is something we're watching very, very closely. So I wish I had definitive answers for you, but like many things, it's a watch and see. And tell us more about the center. What is the scope of operations there? Because you have a research side and a clinical support side. So that's a big order. Yeah, it's actually terrific because it really lets us think about research from the beginning. So conceptualizing even animal research all the way through implementing in the real world and helping veterans in real time. There's actually 10 MIREX. Each MIREX is focused on a specific area and ours is focused on suicide prevention where the Rocky Mountain MIREX is in Denver and also in Salt Lake City. So in two different places. And that really allows us to have lots of different research projects going. And although we're in the Rocky Mountain region, we're really an asset to the country. And we're able to provide both basic research, human subjects, kind of typical human subjects research, but also work really closely with VA central office and identify practices and very early evidence to start to implement things nationwide in the VA that we think can make a big difference. I guess maybe one of the secrets to suicide prevention is early detection of those trends or mental conditions that might lead someone to suicide. What's the latest thinking there and what kind of research do you do to maybe identify those points? Yeah, there's all kinds of really interesting research happening about how to better identify. But one cornerstone is really making sure we're asking folks. And VA has undertaken something that has actually never been done at this scope before. We're doing universal screening and directly asking people about suicide risk. So it's not just asking about depression or other things around suicide, but directly asking folks if they are in crisis right now and using evidence-based measures to do that. And this is something that we have partnered with folks across the entire country. And in terms of um, support, also, this could never happen without leadership support. And to this point, we've been able to evaluate over 6 million veterans coming in for care for suicide risk, which is huge. And that's just in primary care. This plan is happening across different settings. So really working with folks, folks don't often think about going, let's say, to be medically hospitalized, but they ask me about suicide risk on the way out the door. But we know that transitions are a risky time. So really getting everybody on board, everybody at the medical facilities across the nation on board and having standard strategies to do this. And it's it's been huge. And at first, I think people were like, is this, you know, is this what I should be doing? Is this part of what I do as a surgeon or as a physician in a sleep clinic? And I think we've really come a huge way in, in really helping folks realize we need everybody on board to do this or we can't make differences. 
And with a database of 6 million individuals that have been studied, admittedly, these people have a special experience in their life, having been in the military and are veterans. But it seems like with a database that wide, what you're doing could have application to wider society. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's super important to know that the VA and what happens in the VA can inform healthcare across the country. And that's one of my proudest things about working at the VA is I think we're able to do things and identify things that really set the precedent for what's happening outside the VA. And certainly we're working with national partners across the country thinking about, hey, we've been able to do this thing in the VA because we have a huge system and we're coordinated. Could you take it to your system and try And could it work? And I think folks sometimes don't realize that the VA contributes all kinds of things to the health care you're getting every day. We're speaking with Dr. Lisa Brenner. She's director of the Rocky Mountain Mental Illness Research, Education and Clinical Center at the Veterans Health Administration. And that's true. VA publishes in all of the major medical journals. But I wanted to ask you also, how does work being done by the Defense Department? which has its own suicide issue, and say NIH, which has a general health mission. Do you Mm -hmm. work with those organizations and make sure that nobody's duplicating effort? You know, I think that the suicide prevention community is extraordinarily close, and it's not as large as maybe some of the other communities, and we all work together very closely. So in terms of funding, in terms of priorities, in terms of projects, that there are kind of national, the national lines and other things that are setting priorities for the nation. And then I think all of us certainly are kind of thinking about how do those apply to the different areas. VA works very closely with DOD. And of course, we have particular interest, you know, in folks coming out of the military and what we can do to help folks have that transition period be as good as it can be. Sometimes it can be challenging. All transitions are challenging, but we want to be here for folks as they come out. And you provide advice and counsel for maybe outside practitioners that might be dealing with veterans outside of the VA context, but they can call you and say, hey, I've got a veteran and I have these questions. You're available for that too, the center. Yeah, I'm so happy you brought that up. Our National Consult Service. So I think if you don't have the opportunity to work with veterans, well, first of all, you're missing out because veterans are awesome. And it has been my greatest honor to be able to work with vets in the VA for the past 20 plus years. But it is a culture. And if people do have a common experience, like you said, and that if you don't have a sense of that common experience, if you don't take the time to learn about what it means to people to have been in the military or to be a veteran, It may be challenging. And so our National Consult Service, what we've been able to do is help providers work with veterans from the lens of being culturally competent about veteran status and suicide prevention best practices. So really bringing the best evidence to veterans receiving care in the community by working with providers. The other thing that's really important about that is for providers, having a veteran or anybody on your caseload that is really quite suicidal can be very, very stressful. And we want folks to know that they're not in this alone. We're here with you. We want to work with you. We want to talk with you. And we want to help you provide the best evidence-based care possible. Because we don't want folks to burn out working with high-risk folks either. And you shouldn't do it by yourself. you got to be together with people. And a question I've always had in this whole area, and we've covered this over the years, there are people that might have an a priori tendency to suicide because of something in their genes or whatever it is that causes that. Then there are those that have had the trauma of, say, battle or combat, which Mm -hmm. can produce effects and traumatic brain injury and so forth. Is it possible to distinguish between those two? Is that a factor in the research that you do? 
I think that the, all those points and all those data points are really important. And I try to take a really cumulative vantage point when I think about somebody's life. I like to think about kind of what's their family history or even maybe what's their genetics, what's happened to them in their past, maybe in the military or what's happening to them right now. And I think part of the challenge with suicide prevention is that everybody's got a different cumulative trajectory, right? And it's not just one thing. It's really the accumulation of things for most people that they get to a certain point in their life where they start having challenges. And how do we do a better job taking tons of data points, looking at tons of data points together, and then really implementing strategies and personalized strategies to meet people before they get to that kind of point that they get in trouble? There's certainly many new strategies, analytic methods that we're using. And you asked me about NIH. We do have an NIH-funded grant right now where we're looking at just that. How do you take tons of data points from previous, past, current, childhood, the whole banana, and then put them together in a way that you can really identify folks and when they might be in trouble? Yeah, that whole idea of artificial intelligence, predictive analytics, that's coming into the mental health sphere in a pretty big way, isn't it? Yes, it is. And it's super exciting because I think what we're really finding is this is giving us new tools and new strategies. And, you know, initially we were kind of worried that folks might be put off by this or, you know, not like being identified. But what we've really found is that folks really appreciate us reaching out to them. They feel really cared for and that it really creates connections between the care provider and the care facility and people we take care of. So I think really uh, thinking about new ways to reach out to people and help people feel helped. Sure. I guess talk will always be part of the mental health spectrum of treatment, but if you can speed things up with data, then so much the better. Fair way to yeah, put it. Yeah. I mean, I always want to know when's the right time to reach out to somebody. And it turns out if we can do a better job identifying the right times and really reaching out and having connections and relationships and helping folks know that we care, uh, that they matter to us and that we're thinking about them. And I think that's one of the most important things is to let folks know, you know, me as a, as a clinician that I'm thinking about the people I work with, I matter about them. I may not even have talked to them for a year or two, but I really matter about them and that they still have reason to live. So as a center director for a pretty big center, you still have a caseload of your own personal patients. I do. I feel like it's really important to help be in the mix with folks. And it's something I can't give up working with vets and working with other folks. It's uh, it's just really meaningful to me. And, you know, some days as a center director, you're dealing with a lot of different administrative things, email, really important stuff that needs to get done. And it, it kind of gets you away from the everyday work of what we're really doing. And so I just really love seeing folks. Dr. Lisa Brenner is director of the Rocky Mountain Mental Illness Research Education and Clinical Center at the Veterans Health Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a B.S. from the University of South Carolina and an M.P.A. from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. 
Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness Uh, in America, and certainly within me, uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. (laughs) Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision, and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have uh, my willingness to to fight for change, and that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the 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 massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life, and and it, it conjured up again these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy 
And now we have a whole broad historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most. And that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision, uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. 
I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are hard workers. That's where the work is done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If, if there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.